0: Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Michelle Romano, co-founder and president of ClearBank, which calls itself the biggest e-commerce investor in the world. I wanted to ask Michelle about the future of the DTC model in which her company has invested more than $1 billion, as well as digital advertising, which is the endpoint for those funds. Welcome, Michelle.
1: It's wonderful to be here, Jillian. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Thank you for being here. I got to dig into the business model. And I also, we got to explore what you're eyeing, what's worthy of an investment in this crazy time. But talk to me about ClearBank. So 2,800 DTC D2C brands, is, is, that, yep. is that number increased?
1: Yeah, we are at a 3,000 different companies we have invested in. Um, We've put over a billion dollars in capital. Um, So we are deeply invested um, in the space. And I think probably more importantly is I should share some of my story about how we even started in the space.
0: Yes, please.
1: So, you know, I've been a serial entrepreneur my whole life, <laughs> done everything from, you know, when I graduated engineering, I figured out that worldwide supply of caviar was down by 95% because the world had overfished the Caspian Sea. So I've done everything <laughs> from build a caviar fishery in the East Coast. Um, you know, the recession got so bad in 2008, I ended up working for a big retailer and saw I seen the very, very early stages of e-commerce this since 2009, 2010, Um, built a fairly large e-commerce company in Canada that should go public later this year. So have been there on that journey, buying those ads, figuring out how to make unit economics work. Um, Then built another app that, uh, that was sold to Groupon in 2014. And What happened after that was really interesting. I ended up getting asked to join the cast of the Canadian version of the Shark Tank television series. So it's called Dragon's Den in Canada. It's the same show. And so we see all of these founders, especially e-commerce founders, coming on the show saying, you know, look, I got this great product. I have great unit economics, meaning I make money after I pay for the cost of my product and the cost of the ads. And I'm here on the show looking for, you know, 200 grand for 20% of my company. And there was just something after seeing that pitch, like so many different times where I was like, this isn't a good deal for the founder. And this really isn't a great deal for me, the investor. Um, and so I said, look, you know, instead of, um, you know, giving up a part of your company that you're never going to give, get back to the founder, you know, if you're looking to just buy ads, why don't I give you the capital you're looking for? I'll give you the $200,000 you're looking for. Um, or the hundred thousand dollars, yeah. And instead of taking twenty percent of the company, why don't I take five percent of your revenue until you pay me back my capital plus six percent? So for a hundred grand, you pay me back hundred and six thousand dollars. That's it. Like I'm gone. You know, if you use my capital to grow your business, that's great. I got a little bit of return on my money. Um, and if not, I'll just wait it out for the journey. So this this wasn't a loan. There was no. Personal guarantee or fixed payment timelines or compounding interest. This was truly like a revenue share designed for the D2C space. Yes. Um, because today, it's crazy, Jill, like, you know, 50% of the VC dollars that go into D2C companies go straight to Google or Facebook, like to two vendors. 50%. That's not.
0: Yeah,
1: (laughs) it's wild. and, And any DDC founder knows this. I mean, customer acquisition is the core of what you do. And so if you have good unit economics, why are you using the most expensive capital, which is always going to be equity? I mean, you're giving up a piece of your company. You're never going to get back. You're giving up control to do something that by definition should be repeatable and scalable. And so, you know, we've we certainly, that was our, our value prop at the beginning. I did the first deal on, uh, on, you know, the, the show, the founder loved it. And then we've obviously, I mean, we never thought we would get this big. I mean, the fact that we've backed now 3000 different companies, um, you know, all like lots of the big ones you've heard of the Lisa sleeps, nectar, public goods, untuck it, Like we've backed so many interesting companies and now our capital nice. is used for ad spend, but it's also, we have a great product for buying inventory. Um, and we have lots of other ways we can, help founders from, you know, helping them figure out who to sell their companies with. We facilitate a lot of transactions, helping them find their best ad agency and and using all of the data we have to, to tell companies how they can really grow better. So it's now, you know, we're, we're an investor that's that's more than just capital and it's a lot more. But that was the story of like how surprisingly we uh, got <laughs> into the space from a TV show because most people say like, you could never get a good idea from reality television, which I would generally agree with. So <laughs> <This> was pretty <laughs> unique.
0: So on Dragon's Den is the pitch still uh taking ownership of the company or a portion of the company or is it more like loans the clear bank model?
1: Oh, well so the you know the the television show is is just like Shark Tank, right? You know, sometimes it makes sense to do a royalty Um, Sometimes it makes sense to do equity, especially if companies are, are, you know, very early or you really need someone strategic. Um, But I think what we see by and large for 90% of companies is that as soon as they figure out a product that customers like, as soon as they figure out how to find those customers digitally online, you know, the growth really comes from being able to scale up acquisition. And so yeah. in those cases, um, scale up acquisition and scale up inventory, right? It's usually like one or the other, especially for the e-commerce space. Um, and so we can be value added in a lot of spaces. And so I mean, it would be um it would be unfair if I just offered six percent cost of capital every day on Dragon's Den. So right. <laughs> uh, we definitely do uh, we do some equity deals, we do some longer term royalty deals, and
0: uh and definitely some clear bank deals for sure. Gosh, what can you tell me about the state of digital advertising? You mentioned uh, a number earlier, 100k or 200k. Uh, what would that get a brand these days in terms of digital ads?
1: Yeah, so you know we we track this very closely. So we will find companies, we'll start companies anywhere with you know um, five thousand dollars of monthly revenue up to we'll give companies between five thousand up to ten million dollars. So we can really scale and go quite large with our companies. Yeah, um, and I think right now is an incredible time for the D2C world. Like I think it has been a hard time for the world, um but we've you know seen a 10 year growth in e-commerce that we would have never witnessed without COVID. Yeah. You can see those charts that show that as a percentage of retail sales e-commerce has gone from you know 14% to 28% in the first 12 weeks of COVID. I mean that that was truly a 10 year shift. We thought that would happen in 2030, not in 2020. Right. <laughs> um but, But let's look more deeply at what that was composed of. Um, And, you know, the first thing is we got comfortable buying categories that people had been really uncomfortable before. So, you know, there was probably people of our demographic that were totally fine, um, you know, buying groceries online. But she looked at someone like my mother. She was like, absolutely not, Michelle. All of my blueberries are going to come crushed. Like I couldn't possibly trust (laughs) someone else to do this. And COVID hit and she had to trust someone else to do it. And she's like, Wow, this was game changing. <laughs> and so food was a huge category that surged, you know, big bulky items. I mean, most people still, if they were buying, you know, twenty or fifty or a hundred thousand dollars of furniture, they wanted to go into a showroom, they wanted to touch and feel it. Now people were company that were comfortable like refurnishing their homes on e-commerce. They were comfortable buying barbecues and items that that were really hard to show. Totally. And then there was kind of this final category of products we felt we needed to like touch and feel. Um like color cosmetics. And I think about this one, like the thought of using a lipstick sample <laughs> at this day and age just seems like <laughs> no how how would we have ever done that? Period. Like even with, you know, a new wand or a new applicator or something, it's like, that's gross. (laughs) Like we can't even be six feet, uh, you know, close to each other. And so categories like that, that have, you know, slowly been increasing, it was like, okay. Um, And so, you know, overall, I think what that meant was two things. The consumer was much more willing to buy. That was the first thing. And the second thing was that, you know, because so much of customer acquisition for DTC, especially at least until you're at, call it, you know, 20 million of revenue comes, you know, from really strongly, usually from Google and Facebook, you know, ad prices across Google and Facebook did drop fairly substantially, kind of anywhere from 10 to 30%, depending on your category and your market, Mm -hmm. because all of the advertisers that did events and all of the advertisers that did travel fell off the platform. And so... That became a really good time um, to just to just grow with customers in a different way. Ad prices go down. Um, customers still want to buy. We haven't seen a slowdown in consumer spending, which is probably largely related to a ton of stimulus money um, that's still floating in the economy. But all of those things, I mean, make this like this is going to be an incredible Black Friday for e-commerce companies and uh, and generally an incredible year.
0: Yeah. Oh, we'll see. That is positive. I will take that for sure. So why why does a brand come to like ClearBank instead of a bank bank?
1: Yeah. The, the fundamental reason is that banks don't understand digital businesses. And the easiest way to think about this is banks understand assets. Like they understand if you're a restaurant with a pizza oven and your business goes out of business, they can sell the pizza oven and it has a residual value. Yep. Um valuing inventory is incredibly difficult for banks and this idea that you know customer acquisition costs or how you buy your digital ads was an asset or a skill set at all was totally foreign to banks. And so banks have created products for entrepreneurs that that take no risk on those entrepreneurs. They basically say because you're a small business and because I can't understand it what we'll say is we'll just put a personal guarantee in there and if the business fails then I'll take your personal assets. And that's really been the option um, that's been available for e-commerce and direct-to-consumer and many, many entrepreneurs yeah. um, is is really not understanding. And you know, make no mistake, we couldn't do what we what we do um, unless we had. You know, we have digital access to data sources, and then we use a ton of AI. Um, to figure out how strong people's businesses are and how much capital we can give them. And so there's a lot of data that goes into this. I mean, you can't just, you know, get rid of, you know, your security and your personal guarantee without actually understanding these businesses. But, these businesses deserve to be understood. Like direct-to-consumer is a huge space now. And so we, um, we became very good at understanding that a lot of that early understanding was based on my experience as an e-commerce entrepreneur yeah. um, and understanding the unit economics. And uh, we've seen that grow. The other thing, Jill, that's really interesting is that, and we didn't know this was going to happen. And I love when surprises in business happen. Like, we were just like, we got to build a product for e commerce founders because there's a lot of them and they're all basically treated unfairly. And it's really hard to raise capital, even if you're an incredible e commerce founder. But so we're like, look, the only way we can do this many deals is we have to automate this, we have to build this AI. And then a year and a half into this, we look back and we're like, who have we funded? (laughs) And we looked at all the founders we had funded. We had funded eight times more women. the venture capital industry average which i'm like super proud of We funded founders in all 50 states in america like this compares to 80 percent of vc dollars last year went into four states in america california new york texas massachusetts there was nine states in america last year that had zero companies in those states that got venture capital funding like this is vc is a human to human model and so we funded founders in all 50 states and we have funded a huge percentage of, you know, minority founders as well. And I think it's just, it's one of those great stories about AI where like, you can actually see if you take the bias out of some of these investment decisions, you, we all know that great ideas don't just come from one group of people that went to a certain group that went to a certain school that are part of a certain circle, right? Definitely. Um, And we've been able to see just like, incredible, you know, founders from, you know, across America, whether they're ex-military veterans or single moms that started, you know, specialized hair products, that, like all of these things have just, you know, grown enormously. And so I think that's the other really cool part about, uh, about using AI to make these decisions.
0: Yeah. Because you're looking at different data points to kind of deem a customer worthy of an investment. Yeah. Where, what are you looking at? What, what are the, um, yeah, points that kind of, you know, eliminate risk for you or um, makes it a go?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we're looking at your revenue, your growth, how you're getting that growth. Is that growth coming from kind of a one hit PR wonder or is it coming from, you know, a sustained source um, of, of digital ads or something else that you're buying that's providing that? we're looking at your unit economics. So that's just, you know, if you're selling something for a hundred bucks, is your cost $50 and your ad spend 10 bucks, like you're in a great position. Yeah. And then we're looking at how much of your audiences you've penetrated because there's oftentimes a ton of room for growth in these companies. Um, and so there's, there's a lot more, but those are the big factors um, that really play into us looking at e-commerce companies.
0: Yes. So you're looking at all of this, then COVID hits. And then I would think that maybe what applied up till now or what worked up until now? Um, I don't know, like we're seeing shifts in categories. Um, those necessities are, um, categories are booming, maybe fashion, not so much. Are you, are you looking at kind of trends as well, or is it all based on facts and stats?
1: No, it's a really great question. So, you know, at the beginning of covid we just like got lucky because we had all of this information. So we were seeing in real time how categories were actively changing, right? Mm -hmm. That, um, you know, early kind of beauty was down, then segments of beauty really surged, like everything to do with skincare, face masks, hair masks, like that (laughs) went through an incredible surge, but like, call it like, you know, lash extensions and like glitter eyeshadow, like plummeted. Like, so we were actually seeing, because we have so many companies, we were seeing granular trends, even among segments of the space. And I think like everyone, you know, we were pretty concerned with the first month of COVID and then have generally, um, you know, with the exception of probably businesses that touch travel and events, um, you know, we have just seen incredible growth across the e-commerce board.
0: Oh, wow. Interesting. So are you, what categories are exciting you now, even whether you're on the show or that you're looking to invest, it's beauty, it's wellness is what else? I, I yeah, don't, don't let me put words in your mouth. Is it beauty and wellness? No, no. It's a, it's, a, it's a great question. Um,
1: my gosh, what's exciting me? Um, I think there is like the biggest thing that I would keep in, in mind in terms of entrepreneurs is like, the world just totally changed everything it needed. Like it just, it went through this massive shift and it's clear that like, you know, this isn't this isn't gonna end as quickly as I think we all hoped. And so that breeds a lot of opportunities. So like, definitely like health and wellness, very, very excited about that space. I think a lot of people took stock of, you know, themselves, their bodies, their health, and are constantly looking for kind of what I would call like better for you products across like, all levels of cpg um all levels of like you know people are looking at totally different kind of fitness things um and we've seen a bunch of players do really well in that space i think yeah. apparel has changed and probably some of those changes will be um fairly permanent i mean i'm um, one of my previous co-stars on dragon's end was uh, the founder of club monaco um oh, a wow. fellow named joe mimran and so he, you know been deep in the apparel space, 30 years of experience. And I saw him in September to do it like a filmed charity event when we were all six feet apart. We did it um, in a studio and he had on a suit. And I mean, this is a guy that is always known for looking absolutely impeccable. And he looks at me and he goes, Michelle, this is the first suit I've put on in six months. And like, (laughs) boy, are these things uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So I mean, if you are looking at the king of, like, w- truly one of the the fashion kings, saying like, "I'm not sure I'm going back to hard pants." I think there's many other people <laughs> that are going to prioritize comfort um, and have just going to realize like we don't need all the things we need. I mean, even myself, I'm like, what am I doing with fifty pairs of pumps? Like, that's just right. completely unnecessary. Like, you know, have a have a you know, great collection of high heels, but like, this is just excessive. Um, And I think that's actually all good for us personally. Uh, For the businesses, I think that we're going to, people are going to continue to look for, I think, better quality products that are longer lasting. Um, And and I think we'll just see more of that. And that's where we've really seen um, a lot of the changes is in the apparel space and how people are thinking about that. Um, But um, yeah, those are, that's what I'm excited about.
0: Yeah. What about kind of, uh, I know on your toast, um, your list of investments, uh, one was Le Tote. What about kind yeah. of these emerging business models? Um, do you have faith in like the rental model? Resale seems to be on the upswing. Um, tell me what you're looking at.
1: That's a really good question. Um, I think we're going to continue to see, I think we're finally hitting that moment around resale around fast fashion around consumption. I think we have to differentiate, like, fashion will still always have an affordable piece to it. Um, but just this like need for, you know, five, six seasons a year is totally unsustainable for the designers. It's totally unsustainable for consumers (laughs) and it just, it, it doesn't make sense long-term. And so I think a lot of people have looked at like, what am I wearing and what do I like wearing? How do I, you know, list a bunch of these items? Um, I think the resale market will continue to be great. I mean, it was, I don't think, I mean, I remember being 25 years old and the only way I could convince myself to buy a pair of Louboutins is if I bought them from a, (laughs) you know, a uh, woman from Japan that wore them once and was willing (laughs) to sell them at a 40% discount, right? Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a great way to kind of experience um, your first luxury product. And then I think rental is, I think that's a, a, a still really a to be seen category. It, yeah. If we are going back to offices um, and if we are going back to weddings and ball gowns and events, there is going to be an incredible business for that because I just, frankly never thought it made sense to own a gown and then even I mean even within the celebrity circuits I mean they never owned those gowns either they were borrowed from designers right like this whole idea that um you know you would want to wear a dress more than once and then own it and take care of it like that didn't make any sense but I but we are in a world where I mean we're at you know the digital Emmys we're at the digital everything I don't think that will stay forever but I think it's the rental model is going to be very tough um unless you're you're um you're seeing the same people every day is really what it's reliant on, right? I mean, I think about this even even in my own, like when I used to do a ton of travel, I mean, I didn't care if I wore the same outfit every day because I met different people every day. So the only person (laughs) I made a difference to was me, but it was very efficient. Um, But I think if you are seeing the same people every day, it's still kind of a little bit weird to me. I mean,
0: that's my motto, different crowd, wear it again. (laughs) All good. Um, I know I keep highlighting that your, your investments in DTC, but, um, we're, I also like you, you say e-commerce in general. Um, are you interested in maybe, um, I've been hearing a lot of investments in the marketplace model, uh, what other beyond just directed consumer brands, where are your invest- investments going?
1: Yeah. So it's DTC is very relevant because it's, um, it's the vast majority of, um, of what I've been able to what what ClearBank's been able to invest in. But we've certainly expanded. We have done um, some marketplaces, which I think you know have and will continue to surge. We have, you know, branched out into B2B SaaS companies. And so you know the same way that you know you acquire a customer with a digital ad in an e-commerce company, you acquire a customer for a B2B software company, you know, largely through a salesperson that you have to pay a commission and you're using equity dollars towards that. Yes. And so we've had, um, we've had, you know, really good, uh, traction and being able to, you know, take this idea of revenue share and take it into different industries. Um, but yeah, I think all of those things are going to, you know, continue to grow.
0: Yeah. Has your, pro- uh, practice for like gauging again, someone worthy of an investment pretty tried and true. Have you, um, I don't know. Lessons learned along the way. Anything bites you in the ass?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, look, you you don't get good without making a few mistakes. And yeah. um, and this was, I mean, this was a really hard business at the beginning, Jill. Like I, I think I met, me and Andrew met with maybe like, we got 250 no's on Wall Street uh, when we tried to start raising this money. I mean, people looked at us and they said, okay, so you basically want to give startups money with no security with no personal guarantee. And you're saying that you have a data story and we don't believe that and you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of people said that to us and it was ultimately other founders that, that backed us. It was, um, you know, our second fund was anchored by the founder of Seamless who, you know, had built one of these huge food delivery companies. He's like, I struggled with how to you know, and where to get capital to finance user acquisition, my whole career, he totally got it. Yeah. And, you know, was was one of the big investors that that really helped us build um, you know, amongst um amongst, you know, many, many other incredible people that uh that supported us along the way. But yeah. it it wasn't like it wasn't easy and it wasn't obvious when we started. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's the thing that, you know, people are like, oh, well, this makes so much sense looking backwards. I'm like, yeah, but like five years ago, this definitely did not seem like the most um, obvious or logical thing to do.
0: Let's take a quick break. How are brands finding out about you? Is it a lot of word of mouth? I know that like, you were definitely on my radar, but I wanted to get in touch with you because you, you were mentioned by another Canadian brand, NYX and Joanna, yep. but like, is it there a lot of word of mouth or what's going on there?
1: Yeah, it's great. It's a good, it's a good question. I think that majority of our companies, yeah, find out about us through other founders. I mean, now that we've backed like 3000 different companies, there's a lot of people in the market that have have discovered us. Um, You know, we work with a ton of different partners, whether that are ad agencies or other companies that touch the e-commerce space. So that's, um, you know, been good for us. And then we, we, um, you know, do outreach where we look for great companies. Um, And I think that's what all great investors do is that they, they look for companies that they want to invest in and try and get in, in touch with those founders. But um, yeah, that's how we're—that's how we're finding, um, you know, great companies today.
0: Yes. Tell me where you think uh, digital ad spend is going. Facebook and Instagram—that's uh, where a majority of your funding was going. Is that still that's the focus? And wh- where do you see the future of digital ads?
1: Yeah, no, I think we see today, like, even a really nice blend across, like, on the ad spend, it's like Facebook, Google, tons of, like, we're seeing um, billboards, we've seen TV, we've seen way more offline activities that have been really interesting, and that we continue to be super curious. Um, Pinterest is doing well, like, there's lots of other things that are not just Facebook, Google, um, on the ad spend side. And then, um, um, you know, I think we talked about prices across um digital ads but now yeah. is the time more than ever for just a ton of creativity right like we you know just like you would never want to be reliant on one supplier for your inventory you'd always want to have like a backup person that could manufacture for you it's yes. the same thing with you know acquiring your customers you never want to be reliant on on one platform and so we work with a lot of our companies to make sure that they're you know getting a ton of diversity from where they're finding their customers and you know doing the very best they can in terms of retaining their current customers.
0: Yes. Where do you fall in kind of the brands uh I guess lifetime? <laughs> what at what point do brands typically uh, look to you?
1: Yeah. As soon as you're getting started, we like to start talking to companies whether you're just you're just starting to get revenue or you're just pre-revenue. Um, we generally start funding companies at about ten thousand dollars in monthly revenue, um, and we're looking um, and launching some new products for for smaller companies, and then we will scale all the way up to giving you know ten million dollars in funding, which you know could be for companies that are doing a hundred million dollars in revenue. And we have seen like some incredible growth stories over the last couple of years, um, where we've been really able to take some companies to kind of that next level.
0: Yes. So, future of fashion. Can you just tell me, fashion brands, if they're not in that category that you talked about, maybe uh, that are non, that are comfortable, that are maybe not a suit. Do you, is there anything specifically in terms of uh, fashion that you're not looking at, uh, and that, or that you are focusing on?
1: Yeah, I think we are we are heavily focused on. You know, we just we look at what's what's working in the market, and and we try not to be too myopic around a segment, right? And so, you know, I, I didn't think that swim was going to work in this market. We've actually seen a lot of companies that have continued to grow. I don't know where people are wearing these swimsuits. Maybe it's just (laughs) to their backyard. Maybe it's to their own, maybe it's just to their own Instagram accounts. I have no idea. (laughs) Um, But I know that there are some companies in swim that have done really well, which if you were to, to ask, you know, on just, you know, a guess, I probably would have guessed wrong. I think, you know, probably formal, any, but anything that touches like athleisure, comfort, more technical fabrics, um, people are getting outdoors like never before. I mean, we've all had to reinvent like our summer vacation, our time outside. Um, and so people, and then products that have a utilitarian component, like Nixwear, right? It's a great, you know, something that I didn't know I needed. And then as soon as you have this product, you're like, I can't go back to conventional underwear. I mean, these just work way too well. Yeah. Um, And, uh, and so I think there's a lot of things like that in the apparel category that are starting to, um, to really grow.
0: Definitely. I know, uh, ClearBank has evolved. Uh, would you say that it's more so, um, in addition to funding advertising, do you agree that that was kind of a bulk share of what you were doing? Is it more so now consulting? How would you describe kind of the direction? So for
1: us, you know, we've still, I mean, we've deployed a billion dollars in capital. So that capital has gone towards ads. It's gone towards inventory. It's gone towards, you know, people in development and product development, like all parts of growing the company. I think, um, you know, probably more than half of it's gone to ads, but inventory would be a huge part of that um, as well. And then we don't like, we don't think about it as like consulting or making money off consulting. We think about it. It's like, how do we help founders win? And so the first way you help a founder win that was always hard for me for the first 10 years of my career is like getting, you know, easy access to capital, right? It was like a fundraising process takes you three to six months, you know, it's, it's a grueling process. You totally take your eye off the ball. And so reinventing capital and like we call our product, the 20 minute term sheet, because after you give us access to your data sources, it's 20 minutes and we can tell you how much capital we can give you in the terms of that capital. Yeah. and the second thing that I think founders were hugely disadvantaged by is they had no idea how to figure out what their companies were worth. Like, I don't know, is my company worth $2 million, $10 million, $15 million? Like, I don't really know. And so we built this incredible evaluation tool where you can give us access to your data and we can give you a range and say, look, the company today is worth between eight and a half and $10 million. And here are the things that you can actually do to improve that, right? You know, you're... Yeah. Click-through rates are really good, but people aren't buying your product. So here's, you know, you probably have inventory sold out. Um, and so we're, we've built a lot of those like automated um, coaching type of stuff. And so we don't want to be like a consulting business where we don't have we have individuals in our team that just care about how you know we can get our companies to grow. Um, and then we have teams that help you with you know the buy sell piece if you're looking to sell your e-commerce company. But um, but but it's like it's a lot of using our data science and then giving those insights back to founders in the automated way where we're not charging for any of those products. I mean, we don't charge for valuation. Um, the only place we make money off of uh, is is taking a small fee on our capital.
0: Yeah. Are there any kind of through lo- through lines in terms of what um, you've found makes for a, a, a brand that prove successful that actually takes off? Are, are you seeing, mm. you know, the usual, like a, a stronger community, uh, anything along those lines?
1: I think I always go back to like some of the fundamental like basics on e-commerce and, you know, getting your fundamentals right, just continue to deliver every time. So like the first thing that matters the most is like, do you have profitable unit economics? Like when you sell an item, are you making money on that item? Yeah, <laughs> And it's not a complicated question. It's amazing how many complicated answers you can get to this question. <laughs> but the reality is, is like, are your basket sizes big enough? Have you figured out how to price and bundle? Are your costs low enough? And are your acquisition costs low enough that the first time people show up to your website, they've bought something and they've given you enough money that you've covered the cost of acquiring that customer. Yeah. That's probably like the number one most important thing. And I do this all the time on Dragon Stand. Is like, just break down your unit economics, right? My basket yeah. size is a hundred dollars. My cost of goods is twenty-five dollars. It's another twenty-five dollars, you know, for me to acquire the customer. So then I make fifty. Ten dollars shipping. Now I'm at forty. Okay, now we've made forty dollars on this customer ninety percent of the time. Like that is um, that's I think the, the first fundamental important thing. And yeah. too many businesses. Um, don't understand this. And and they always end in tears. Like it's it's <laughs> what as soon as you are losing money on that first customer acquisition piece, it's very, very difficult for to make up for that. I'd say the second most important thing when it comes to fundamentals is then how do you treat your repeat customers? And people have like a million ways. I mean, some people use the term community for this, some people use the term um retention rate, but it's you know, if people have experienced your product and then got your product, do they feel compelled to buy from you again? And, mm-hmm. you know, being really, um, I think, ruthless with yourself on understanding, like, what does it need? Does it take a retargeting ad for that to happen? Can I do that all through email, which costs me nothing? Um, you know, or people getting something that they're just kind of like, oh, that was okay. <laughs> and then they right. have to rediscover you all over again. Um, and that can just, totally change the unit economics on a business because as soon as you've acquired the customer you know that's your that's your first or second most expensive cost depending on the cost of the product that you just sold and so it is um, it's probably the next thing that I always pay the most attention to and then um, the last piece is like creativity and audience sizes right like as much as you can be technical about these things yeah we can reinvent hundreds of products with Creativity and the customer wants to be talked to in a totally different way and cares about social issues in a totally different way today. And things can go viral on social media in a totally different way. And so I think that the creativity around sharing that message, sharing it with your own influencers, um, can be really powerful. And we've seen a lot of brands grow that way.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, especially talking margin. It brings to mind, I was listening to um, an event with Michael Prisman. He was speaking about kind of the bifurcation in the industry of either you're very like operations based and focused on like margin and churning out stuff. And he he called out um, that Shein company that's like multi-billion dollar uh, fast fashion. And then, or you're a brand and you're values based and um, there's increasing pressure to kind of, yes, address the issues. Um, Do you see the same kind of split happening?
1: I think, you know, customers have never cared more about where their products are being made and how they're being made. And there's going to be a lot of scrutiny. And so, you know, look, I get that running a company isn't easy. I get that finding manufacturers aren't easy, but you have to be really buttoned up these days because the customer really cares. And there's just a very low tolerance today um, for people, you know, like there is, there's, you know, this is, this is the, the customer cares today. And I think they're willing to pay more. And I think as as brands have continued to go further down the value scale, anything that looks hypocritical, they're being you know deeply penalized for. Um, you know, I, I worry a lot about like cancel culture and brands and personalities making one mistake and people just saying like it's over. Um, but in terms of you know the values that people stand behind, I think you know people are are seeing that that's important and they're they're voting with their wallets.
0: Yes. One more question as we talk about D2C so much, uh, the wholesale model, where do you see that going?
1: I think the wholesale model is going to be in a tough place for a while. Um, You know, I think it got a lot of brands to kind of this $5, $10 million range. Um, But I'm not sure it did so really sustainably because what was happening was retailers were making large buys. They were requesting a ton of specialized inventory um, to make those buys, which was much harder for the brand and the designer. And then, Ultimately, they had these return to vendor models where if the product didn't sell in a store, it got all sent to the brand, which is hugely penalizing. Like, I think, frankly, I think these models are really archaic Um, and they are designed by a retail system that had too many square feet and, you know, just like they wanted to put all of their risk onto their, their brands and their vendors and you're you're starting to see that right and then right. even worse they would take the designer's best pieces and they would copy them and call them private label items and so i think that retail is going to definitely have like a bit of a a bit of a reckoning here <laughs> like yep. we have way too many square feet for what we need in terms of retail footprint especially in the united states um, we are not going to see people shopping the same way they used to for the same things they used to, um, and so it's just a good time for every business to realize that they have to be a digital business. And you own your customer, right? Like that was the line yeah. ten years ago about DDC. It's like you don't have to communicate your customer to your customer through the Nordstrom loyalty points thing where they make you rebuy your own customer that bought your item, right? Like there is a real value, um, where you can build your own CRM where you can understand who your high value customers are. I mean, segmentation is a really important part of any business and there are companies there are, there are customers that will spend, you know, 20,000. I remember this is the craziest thing. I remember when Mm -hmm. we ran, um, a daily deal website. Like I saw that there was one woman that had spent $30,000 on a website. So that's the Um, equivalent of like, you spent $30,000 on like coupons and things to do. First of all, like I commend you for having that much time, but I literally called this woman. I mean, we still had office phones back then for my phone in my office. And I was like, it's so nice to meet you. Thanks for being such a great customer. (laughs) So so brands have always had this. She loves a Deal. She loves. It. She loved a great deal. I don't know who she was buying. I think she was buying some of them for her grandkids and like. But my gosh, she was our best customer, and it's really hard to because especially when your average basket size is like fifty to hundred bucks, the thought of having a customer that spent thirty thousand dollars with you is like just seems absurd. But this is true with every single brand. There is a handful of your top ten percent of customers that have spent an absurd amount of money with you, and yeah. so when you have those customers, you can do an enormous amount to make them feel special, to make them your own group of influencers. Like their love is very genuine. They really put their money where their mouth is. <laughs> yes, And so it like, now that you have that customer, be really creative um, with uh, with how you engage them. And I think you might find some magic because it's just not the same, right? Like someone might buy a thousand dollars from your product from a retailer and, and you have no idea, right? Like they're yes. just, like you would never see that data. And so I think it's... Um, I think that's, you know, a really powerful way
0: for brands to think about it. A reckoning in retail. You heard it here. I was going to say first, (laughs) not first, (laughs) but it's definitely happening in 2020. My goodness. Michelle, this has been so fun. Thank you for being here. Oh, it was wonderful to be here. That's all for this episode, which was produced by Pierre Bienname. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. Don't forget that we're offering Glossy Podcast listeners 20% off an annual Glossy Plus membership, giving you unlimited access to fashion and beauty stories. Use the code podcast at checkout. Thanks for listening and we'll be back next week.